welcome everyone. This is your host, Lucian Gothier, and I am here with a very special guest, Joel Salatin, who's going to be joining us for the upcoming Longevity Now conference, February 7th through February 9th, at the Hyatt Regency in Orange County, Garden Grove, California. So this is going to be another one of our phenomenal events with host David Wolf and an incredible panel of experts. And Joe Salatin is an author, he is a lecturer. And he is also a farmer. So he's written some phenomenal books, which you may have heard of, such as Everything I Want to Do is Illegal, The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer, and Folks, This Ain't Normal. So we are very proud to have on our show today Joe Salatin. So welcome, Mr. Salatin. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Let's dive right into this interview. And I want to start by talking about the farming practices that used to go on maybe generation, two generations ago, where the farming was maybe natural and sustainable without chemicals. The food that we bought was just naturally organic. Organic just meant normal food. But now things have changed quite dramatically. And I know that you've taken over from your parents' farm and that you are a generational farmer. What have been some of the changes that you've seen as a generational farmer between the farming practices that may have been natural, organic, sustainable? compared to what we're doing now? Uh, I would say at the top, yes, it, perhaps it was organic, but I'm not sure it was sustainable back then. The problem with soil fertility and maintaining fertility uh, has been huge. I mean, even uh, obviously the whole the whole plantation system in the South and the whole farming system in early colonial America, uh, I mean, there, there's, there's plenty of, if we want to say non-chemical agriculture that is very unsustainable. I mean, deserts have been created uh, long, long before chemical fertilization. So um, I don't think this is a this is necessarily just a matter of not using chemicals. There are a lot of other things at stake, and and I think the what you know the, the biggest changes have been that rather than multi-species farms, which become much more forgiving from a toxicity, pathogenicity, and just environmental standpoint, some of the biggest changes we've seen in the last. 70 years uh, have been, of course, the monocropping, monospeciation of things, uh, as opposed to, you know, a, a multidimensional farm that grew some hay, some grain, some animals. Uh, now we have, you know, farms that are just orchards or just beef cattle or just dairies or just uh, chickens or pigs or wheat or corn. And uh, this this uh, segregated this segregated mentality toward farming has probably been you know the, the single largest change, and that has been that has been enabled by chemicals, by fungicides, pesticides, herbicides, and of course pharmaceuticals. Uh, you know you couldn't have a single dimension farm 80 years ago because you'd have a buildup of of you know pathogens and diseases and problems. So you needed the multi-speciation plants and animals and a a very integrated approach in order to, um, you know, in order to create enough diversity so that it acted as a check on, you know, on, on, on problems. And, uh, today we've been able to kind of set aside those. Uh, it's, it, 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 it's not real. <laughs> it's temporary, but, uh, we can kind of set those aside for a little while until they become so virulent, like we're seeing with, you know, MRSA and C. diff and, and uh, Campylobacter and Listeria and a whole host of things. I think I think yeah, that's the second big change then that that's, that 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 single speciation has created a a lingo uh, a, a jargon in the farming and food industry that we didn't even have. I mean, when I was growing up, and nobody ever heard the word E. coli, Salmonella, Listeria, 
you know, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. I didn't even know any. I didn't even know anybody that was gluten intolerant or had food allergies. Right. And you know, there's there's a there's a brand new lexicon of 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 uh, pathogenicity and toxicity that didn't exist back then. But it all I think it all stems from the ability to at least uh, make the appearance of going to an efficient quote unquote you know single species system. Okay, and we've got to talk about GMOs because that's such a big topic right now. There's been recent attempts to make mandatory labeling of GMO foods. So what do you think this new development, it's one of the biggest developments certainly in, the, in this generation, has been the development of GMO foods in the last you know decade or two. What impact do you think they're having on far, the farming industry, also the impact they're having on our health? You know, What do you do as an organic farmer to protect yourself from GMO seed exposure? Or if you're an organic farmer, is there a way to protect yourself from GMO seed exposure or pollination drift? And what is your opinion on GMOs overall? <laughs> well, as they say in the country, I'm against it. <laughs> I'm, 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 a, I'm not in favor of GMOs. I think they violate a whole host of ecological principles and, you know, the, the, the patterns of nature. This is not a permutation of Mendel's peas. Uh, this is a, a dramatic, uh, how should I say this? It, it, it's, it's a, a dramatic denial of historic genetic barriers that have existed to preserve purity in the gene pool. Um, about the only thing that we could do in the past when we cross-speciated was, um, well, you know, was a donkey to a horse, uh, which created a mule. But there's one interesting thing about a mule. A mule is sterile. So it's almost as if nature said, okay, I'll let you do a donkey and a horse, but you can't go any further. You know, mm. I'm going to stop it right here. And, and so we have now with our, you know, uh, cleverness as humans, we have now been able to bridge. We've been able to, to go over boundary fences. These are, you know, millennially ordered <laughs> boundary fences. Uh, and we've been able to go over them. Now, what that's doing, of course, is, is creating all sorts of havoc. And it doesn't take long, uh, if you want to do a, uh, you know, a search to see all sorts of problems from spontaneous abortion to infertility you know there's there's just there's there's a host of issues and I, and I think I think that um, for the naysayers out there I would just suggest that remember it took us 14 years to scientifically causally link DDT to infertile frogs and eagle eggs that wouldn't hatch that was 14 years well, GMOs have been around now for, I think, 15 to maybe 16 years, and we're just now seeing a, a just a global exponential growth in indictments, not only of the empirical claims of production, but what we're seeing are, are tremendous negative uh, consequences. And, and those, I'm confident, will proliferate. Now, what do you do as a farmer? You know, these things, I mean, it, it's just, it's heinous, it's immoral, it's, uh, it's evil that these things have been released, you know, into the ecology that are inherently promiscuous and they're inherently non-respective of, of property. And this is one of the big things, you know, I don't get the conservatives who take a very cavalier attitude toward GMOs because the conservatives who really, you know, get up on their hackle about, you know, property rights don't seem a, a, a bit uh, concerned that here these uh, these beings 
these owned patented beings that are owned by you know entities like Monsanto are being released into the environment. These beings do not respect property. They do not respect any of this. And they go willy-nilly across property lines, creating sexual orgies in fields owned by farmers who don't want them. And not only is the industry not liable for trespass, the district attorney won't, you know, won't call up uh, Monsanto and say, hey, come get your, get your things. And by the way, pay the farmer for damages. But we're so convoluted now in our country that not only is the owner of the, uh, I'm going to, I'll just call them bulls for, for sake of, you know, when the bull comes over and tramples my flower bed, not only is the owner of the bull not liable, I am now told by the court of the land that I have to pay the owner of the bull uh, a, a, a fee for the privilege of his bull coming and trashing my flower bed. It, it, it's almost uh, maddening uh, how, you know, how crazy we've gotten. And we've always assumed that your fist ends at my nose. And here we're saying, not only does your fist not end at my nose, it's great when your fist uh, bloodies my nose. So what's a farmer to do? Well, obviously, you know, there are, there are some limitations. You know, we, we certainly, the grain that we buy for our uh, pigs and chickens, you know, we buy GMO free. I'm sure there is a smidgen of, you know, of taint in there. Uh, I think now, generally, it's assumed that any bin of grain in the whole country, even organic, is going to have some part per you know million or billion of of uh, GMO contamination. It's it's that ubiquitous. So you do the best you can do. But yeah, this is a you know this is a big problem. And pollen drift, of course, is a is a big problem. And we're seeing you know some organic farmers that are so uh, contaminated. That they can't, they lose their certification. They lose their organic status, uh, because of the, you know, the pollen drift and the contamination. It's a huge problem. And I think what we need to do is put our attention on enforcing, you know, 600 year old, uh, Magna Carta trespass law. And, uh, I think we'd get where we want to go a lot faster. And Joe, one of the things that came to mind and one of the things that I'm secretly hoping is that there's some natural incentive for the farmer to discontinue the purchase of GMO seeds, either through GMOs simply uh, not able to perform as they were promised or simply through poor performance. Do you, do you see that happening now or do you see that happening in the future? Oh, oh it, 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 it's already happening. It, it's already happening. Um, we, we hear, you know, we actually see more of this happening in places like India and, and other places in the world. But yes, in fact, in the U.S., it's really hard to get this data, but uh, some things that I've seen indicate that the actual acres planted have actually dropped in the last two years. Cotton GMO, for example, uh, GMO cotton is far more susceptible to frost damage. So many, many cotton farmers are, are seeing um, more vulnerability in their crop to, to frost damage. And so they, you know, uh, they're not buying. Uh, corn farmers in Arkansas, I know I, I saw a, uh, a crop specialist from uh, Bayer Corporation makes a lot of uh, pesticides and things. Um, I saw her in Australia actually, we were getting off a plane and, uh, we talked a little bit and she said now in Arkansas, corn farmers automatically assume $70 per acre to pay to have machete wielding um, laborers come in and actually hand take down the giant I think it's ragweed that is a mutated strain from the you know the glyphosate uh, 
uh, contamination and, and, and take that down. Now, that, that's a huge economic cost and a hassle you know, to farmers to have to go in and hand chop these giant you know, jack-in-the-beanstalk weeds because they're so big, they destroy you know three hundred thousand uh, dollar combines when they go into you know to, to cut the crop. Wow. Uh, yes, there there are there are huge uh, flags waving, and um, interestingly, I was just in um, uh, I was in Colorado uh, three weeks ago, and a fella came up to me after I spoke, and he has a really good friend that is uh, he's in the uh, attorney pool at Monsanto actually, and the friend called him. He said. He said, all of us uh, attorneys at Monsanto, we all uh, eat organic, and we all know we're going down, uh, and we work for the evil empire. So, so you know, uh, there there is you know there there is a there is a crack here in the, in these castle walls. You know, these these uh, lords of the of the castles and the estate, you know, their walls are their walls are cracking, and uh, and it'll be interesting to see how. I mean, who would have thought? Who would have thought in the early 1950s? That um, that DDT would be not even used by the mid '60s. I mean, goodness, you can see Time Magazine uh, advertising and just whole full page ads. You know, the, it's the answer to everything. Answer to to disease, malaria, the Green Revolution. You know, DDT spray it. You know, use it on powder your kid's hair with it. You know, it was, it was <laughs> everywhere. And and who would have guessed in 1950 that within you know 15 years it would be obsolete. Yeah, DDT now is like the ultimate symbol of chemical evil and pesticide and herbicide use being, you know, the worst idea ever. And I wasn't around at that time, but I'm sure if we can Google some images of uh, farmers recommending DDT, maybe even doctors recommending the use of DDT, who knows? You know, one of the things that we're hoping for is that 20 years down the line, you know, our children are saying, can you believe they used to make genetically modified food? So it's it's just, it's really amazing how, how things can turn on their head. Right, it is. It is. You know, paradigms have a have a life. And uh, Joel Arthur Barker, who wrote the book Paradigms in about whatever 1975, and kind of introduced the term to the world, um, one of his axioms of paradigms is that all paradigms eventually exceed their point of efficiency. And and um, I, I think that. And the other thing is that every time something appears, the claims of something appear to be. Uh, nearing perfection, it's on the brink of collapse. And you know, one of the one of the best illustrations I know of that in my lifetime was the uh, supersonic transport. You know, the big uh, SST Concorde from France. Oh yeah. And I I'm old enough to remember um, when it landed in JFK Airport. And of course, you know, big banner headlines. You know, the and all the pundits, the you know, the talking heads and stuff on the on the sh- uh, news shows were prophesying. Well, look at this thing, you know, think of what the next generation is going to be. It's going to be bigger and badder and faster and more luxurious, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, the next generation was obsolescence. It was too fast, too luxurious, too big to be efficient. And and uh, that, you know, there's a reason why a mouse is the size of a mouse is and an elephant is the size that an elephant is. You know, um, nature tends toward balance. Nothing is most efficient when it's at full throttle or, you know, faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper. You know, the average NFL football player is dead at 57. Why? Because when your neck is bigger than your head, you're a freak of nature and nature weeds you out, you know. <laughs> so uh, things things tend to go toward a balanced place. There's a there's an ecological there's an ecological accounting system, if you will. 
and um, and nature always bats last, and there's going to be a balancing of that accounting at some point, and you can't, you just can't fool nature uh, forever. And that brings up a really good point, Joel, which is the big ad companies always have an excuse to explain away why they behave the way that they behave. The price of food will skyrocket if we're not able to use fungicides, pesticides, herbicides. Can you talk a little bit about the fallacy in these type of arguments and coming from your perspective, why you're so successful doing what you're doing because you don't fall into that trap? Wow, that's such a great question. I, I think that let's take let's take one if we if we don't if we don't uh, use pharmaceuticals on our animals you know they'll all die well the assumption there is that the animals are in a habitat that encourages sickness now you know if you and I wanted to have a a a pathogenic farm you know a farm that really encourages disease and sickness uh you know the first thing we would do is have only one species the second thing we would do is especially if it's an animal is is combine it you know in a, a Coop it up in a in a single building, uh, without fresh air and sunshine, no exercise, and and then then we would in such a situation, of course, they would ingest that, breathe in their fecal you know fecal particulate air, which makes lesions in the mucous membrane and and, and creates you know infections. So when the industry says, well, we need drugs to keep these things alive, you know, there there it's actually a half truth. You know, it is true, but the assumption is that the animals are in a disease encouraging uh, situation. So, for example, on our farm, all the animals, the animals are on pasture and we move them every day to a fresh spot, i.e. change their bedding, they get fresh air, sunshine, exercise, all these great things. And, you know, we, we don't, we don't need to use any of those drugs. And we, we, you know, we only see a vet maybe, you know, once every other year even though we've got thousands and thousands of animals. So the, the, the first rule of thumb is create a habitat that fully honors and respects the pigness of the pig, the cow of the cow, the tomatoes of the tomato, and that habitat then creates a, uh, you know, a, a place of health and wellness. You know, when, when we see a sick animal, we don't immediately assume, oh, that animal is, uh, is pharmaceutically disadvantaged. We assume that we made a mistake somewhere. We did something in management or in genetic selection or diet or hygiene or something that, that, you know, broke down the immunological function that allowed that animal to get sick. That, that, that's one, you know, one huge difference. I'd say another huge difference is that the, the, the current system is, um, is not carbon centric. It's, uh, it, it it views um, fertility as being something that you bring from outside. You import fertility uh, in a bag, in a train car, you know, whatever. Most of it's petroleum-based stuff, you know, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and other things. And 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 so so fertility is primarily an an outside type of thing. Whereas what we see, the way we see the template of nature is, nature doesn't actually create fertility from the outside in. Nature creates fertility from the inside out. Wow, that is such a great point. And we're going to be exploring that point with Joel again in part two of this interview, which we will be bringing you in a few short days. So keep an eye in your inbox for part two of this interview, where we're going to explore some amazing topics about carbon-based farming and the impacts that it has on our health and our food system. And if you click on the link below, it'll take you to the Longevity Now Conference webpage, which is www.thelongevitynowconference.com. That webpage gives you all the information that you need to see who will be speaking at the Longevity Now conference, who's going to be presenting, 
over $10,000 worth of giveaways, how to book your ticket, how to book your hotel room. So go to www.thelongevitynowconference.com and have the best day ever.